This morning we will be in Philippians chapter 1, and we'll be looking at particularly verses 27 through 30, but I'm actually going to back up all the way at verse 12 and read all the way down through verse 30. Philippians chapter 1. The same man, Paul, who wrote the passage in Ephesians that we read, wrote these words to the church in Philippi, beginning of verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. To all the rest, that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Let us pray together. Our Father and our God, once more we gather together on this, the Lord's Day, to worship you. We do not come here to have a social club. We don't come here to have a good old time necessarily, but we come here to worship you, to exalt you, and to rejoice in the salvation that we have received from you and because of you. We praise you for giving to us your word that not only encourages us when we are discouraged, but gives us fuel for our souls. 
And so I pray that this morning, Lord, you would remove any distractions that are in our souls and that we would feast upon these words that you have given to us. Help us to rejoice together in unity. For we ask all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Walking worthy of the gospel of Christ should mark his bride. I don't see how that at all could be a controversial statement to anybody who loves Jesus. Walking worthy of the gospel of Christ should mark his bride. That should be who we are, that we walk in a way that is worthy of who Christ is. And if anybody modeled it better, it couldn't have been anybody other than Paul. Because this man was consumed. He had a fire in him, consuming him to walk worthy of the gospel with which he had been called. This man had at one point been passionately pursuing the opposite of the gospel. He was a Jew of the Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says in one letter. He was the most religious person you could find. And, and, and if anybody could have made it to heaven by his Jewishness, it certainly would have been Paul. Because this man was a dedicated, thoroughly dedicated Jew. And yet he had an encounter with the very one that he attacked. And that encounter is recorded for us in Acts chapter 9. Where we read that this man, whose name was Saul, was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord... And he went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that he, if he found any who were of the way, that was kind of the shorthand for people who were followers of this Messiah who is supposedly risen from the dead, that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. It doesn't sound like this is a man who is devoted to Christ unless that devotion is to attacking him. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And can I just say, this is a man who is not looking to be converted. He is in no means, in no wise, expecting on this road to Damascus to encounter Jesus, to encounter any Christians who would persuade him about this Jesus. He wasn't looking for God. Nevertheless, Jesus appears to him. In verse 3, he journeyed, he came near to Damascus, and suddenly a light shone round him from heaven, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. And then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. This is a man whose life was radically transformed in the span of, how long did it take me to read that, 30 seconds? 30 seconds. 
He goes from being the most antagonistic, evil persecutor of these followers of the people of the way to 30 seconds later saying, what do you want me to do, Lord? He was transformed. And the transformation wasn't just external. Yes, he was blind, so there was that that happened. But the transformation was fundamentally something that happened both in his heart and in his mind. Jesus overcame his resistance to him. And later on, when Jesus is talking to Ananias, saying in verse 11 of Acts chapter 9, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he's praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. And Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Ananias is saying, Jesus, are you sure you're talking about the right guy? The last I heard about this guy, this guy was all about taking people like me and casting them into prison. Are you sure this is the guy you want me to go see? And the Lord says to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, before kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. He goes immediately from being the one inflicting suffering on others to being the one who will suffer for the sake of Christ. And from that moment on, Saul of Tarsus is a man consumed with Christ. The verses we read, I I kind of wanted to read all of chapter 1 just so that you could see over and over and over again how many times he says Christ, Jesus, Jesus Christ, Christ, over and over and over again. To the point where he says this phrase that for some of us may seem odd, but it's just his shorthand way of saying, this is who I am in verse 21. For me, to live is Christ. That's who it's about. Paul's life was not about advancing his career. Paul's life was not about getting that American dream. Paul's life was consumed with Jesus. So that no matter what happened to him, whether he was living in his body or whether he gave up his spirit and breathed his last, everything about him was about Jesus. For to him, to live was Christ and to die would be gain. Why? Because he gets to be with Christ. So now, after talking about Christ over and over again, and particularly in verses 12 through 18, talking about the fact that he had experienced all these things in God's providence to bring about the preaching of Christ, he gives this command to the church in Philippi when you get to verse 27. Because he believes that everything that he holds dear about Jesus should not just be true of him. And I would submit to us today, it should be true of us. 
Paul is writing to a church in Philippi who, is part, who, who would have been Roman citizens, who would have been part of, of the Roman colony. He, he, he was writing to people who understood citizenship because they were citizens of the Roman Empire. But he wants them to understand that their citizenship lies somewhere else and that their conduct must reflect that citizenship. So in verse 27, after talking about all the things he's endured, talking about his passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ, he turns his guns to the church in Philippi and he says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That should mark Christ's bride. That shouldn't just be true of the church in Philippi 2,000 years ago. That should be true of the church universal for the past 2,000 years until the present day. Whether the church be in China, whether the church be in South America, whether the church be in North America, it doesn't matter where the church is. The church, the bride of Jesus, should be marked by this thing. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This isn't a, this isn't a, a negotiable in the mind of Paul. In fact, this was his main point. If in these verses, his main point is that the church conduct herself in a manner worthy of the gospel. But in these verses, verses 27 through 30, he gives us four marks or identifiers of what a church walking worthy of Christ looks like. And I want to share that with you this morning. The first thing he mentions is really his main point over it all. You could say that my first point here is really his only point and that he has three sub points under it. But for the sake of our understanding this morning, I just have them separated as four points for us, four points or marks that be tr- should be true of the church walking worthy of Christ. And his first one is this, you as the church should have worthy conduct. You as the church should have worthy conduct. This is, this is quite simply his point. Conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel. You may have the King James in front of you, which says, let your conversation be worthy of of the gospel of Christ. That word conversation is kind of an old English word and it's better understand in our modern vernacular as conduct. But what's interesting here in this particular word is he's kind of using a play on words. Later on in this same book, in Philippians chapter 3, he's going to use the same word to describe their citizenship. In chapter 3, verse 20, I'm reading from the New King James here, Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven. Again, if you have the King James, it probably says, for our conversation is in heaven. That word citizenship there is the same one used in verse 27 of chapter 1. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In essence, Paul's using a play on words. He's looking at this Philippian church He's saying, you guys understand something really important. If you're a Roman citizen, you can wear that as a badge of honor. And for the most of American history, that's kind of the way we viewed American citizenship, right? Until recent times, American citizenship was a badge of honor. So many people over the course of U.S. history have flocked to the United States so that they could get their citizenship in a place here. It was was a a place and a, a status of prestige for people to come to the U.S. and to to have the citizenship of such an influential power such as our country. Well, the same idea was true of the people in Rome. They were very proud of their citizenship. 
So Paul's writing to people who were citizens of Rome, and he's saying, okay, I get that. It's important to be very grateful for where you are and for where God has placed you, but don't forget that as, in, as great as it is to be a citizen of Rome, with all the rights and privileges that come with citizens of Rome, you need to remember that as a Christian, your citizenship is somewhere else. Your citizenship resides with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the way he puts it in Philippians 3 is your citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, who? The Lord Jesus Christ. There it is again. Jesus is the person, the being who consumes this man. And he tells the church in Philippi, you may be citizens of Rome, but you are more importantly a citizen of heaven. So let your conduct be worthy of that. If we were to go somewhere into another culture, which I haven't had too much of an experience in, I've been in Canada and I've been in England, and that's about the extent of my, my uh, exposure to other cultures. But perhaps you've traveled around, you've been to other cultures that are significantly different than ours. You probably understand how you feel out of place there. It's, it's, it's different. Not, not, it's not bad. It's just different. It's not the way you're used to doing things. But people can identify you, obviously, as not being a part of that culture if you go into a different country. I think Paul is using this play on words to say your conduct maybe is going to be appropriate for a Roman society. But is that the first thing they're going to think of you when they see you? For Paul, he says, I hope not. In fact, there's one occasion when Paul was actually about to get beaten. Because why? He was a Christian who was proclaiming the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was obvious. And the people who were about to beat him, they're not thinking, I wonder what ethnicity this guy is. Or I wonder what, where his citizenship lies. They were saying, this guy is clearly a Christian. He's propagating this message that is so annoying that we don't want to believe we're going to beat him. And then Paul does what? Pulls out his Roman citizen card. He says, I, you guys probably don't realize this because I wear my citizenship from heaven on my sleeve. But I'm actually a Roman citizen here on earth. The point I'm drawing there is the first thing that crossed the minds of the people who are hearing the message that Paul was saying wasn't, look at that Roman citizen. We've got to be careful how we treat him. It was, this man is clearly someone who identifies with Jesus. It was obvious. He walked in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In, in, in other words, what he's saying here is not esoteric. It's not confusing. It's not theoretical. It's not something abstract in his mind. It's something he lived. And so he calls the church in Philippi, and I believe God, through him, calls the church in the 21st century, in 2023, to walk in a way that is worthy of the gospel. And by that, I think it means that we walk consistently. Notice what he says in verse 27. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent. Paul says whether I'm there or whether I'm not, your walk, your conduct has to be consistent. How is that often true of us? 
so with, with, with kids in the home, when are they more likely to be obedient to the instructions you've given to them? Probably when you're there with them. If I'm in a room and my sons know that there's something they're not supposed to do, I will tell them, don't do it. And when I remain in the room with them, they're a little more cautious because they don't, they don't want to do anything that would cross or violate what I've told them not to do. But the minute I leave the room, their inclinations to do that thing are probably a little stronger because the prohibition and the person who can enforce the results or the consequences of violating that prohibition is no longer there. So, for example, in the boys' bedroom, there, Laura has these uh, cloth diapers, and there's these inserts you put inside them. Well, we've told the boys, they're inside, it's inside this, uh, this, this uh, not closet, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a, uh, yeah, chest of drawers. That's still not the word I'm looking for, but something like that. Anyways, so, so there's this little door on it, and you open it up, and there's all the inserts, and it's accessible. I mean, for Daniel, it's just right there. Just open it right up, and he can have at it. Well, the boys know they're not supposed to do that, and when I'm inside the room with them, of course, they avoid that door like the plague. <laughs> they don't want to touch it. But a couple weeks ago, I was late getting them out of their bedroom, and uh, it's so hard when you're four and two to just stay in your bed after you wake up from a long night of rest and you're just full of energy. So I was late getting to them, getting them up. And I, I go to the door and I see the light underneath the door is already on. So I was like, oh boy, what are we going to see? And I open the door and sure enough, Benjamin and Daniel, knowing better, had opened that door and they had taken these cloth inserts and they had chucked it everywhere. I mean, there's the, there's the window right there and it's got the, the curtains on it. I mean, they were, they were playing a game where they're trying to chuck it and make it land right on top of there and stay there. They were try, there's the, a lamp with a lampshade and they're trying to chuck it inside the lampshade. I mean, I walked in, I just laughed because it's hilarious. But they had violated what I told them to do. They violated because I wasn't there. It's easier for them to be consistent in their obedience if I'm there as someone who can enforce it. Here's Paul. He's saying, you must walk worthy of the gospel of Christ and you must be consistent about it. If I'm there, I expect to see you walking worthy of the gospel of Christ. And if I'm not there, I expect to hear that you are walking in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, it should be consistent. It can't just be looking like a Christian when you walk through the doors to church. It can't just be treating your kids right when you're around other Christians. And then when you get in the car or when you go home, treating them completely differently. The walking worthy of the gospel of Christ, which includes following all the commands Jesus has given to us, must be consistent. Will it be always consistent? Of course not. Of course it's not. And Paul knows that. But that doesn't give us an excuse to not try. So our walk in the gospel of Christ should be consistent, but I think it should also be obvious because notice what he says in verse 27. Not only whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs. Regardless of whether I'm there or not, I want it to be so obvious that people, when they look at you, they say, hey, Paul, 
You know those people at the church in Philippi? Well, let me tell you this, 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 and this that I noticed about them. They're walking worthy of the gospel of Christ. And here are the markers. It's so obvious. Let me show you. And Paul hears of it from so-and-so and from so-and-so and from so-and-so. It's obvious. And it's consistent. The world wants nothing better or more than to look at us as Christians who claim to follow the ways of Jesus and who want to obey his commands, they want nothing more than to find us inconsistent or not obvious about our faith. And I believe it is an act of shame for Christians to claim that they walk worthy of the conduct and conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ if they only do it in front of other people or in the church. I think As Christians, our conduct, our conduct that is worthy of the gospel of Christ has to be consistent and it has to be obvious. People must notice it. The second thing he mentions is in verse, at the end of verse 27, is not only should a church walking worthy of Christ have worthy conduct, but she must be unified in spirit. The end of verse 27, whether I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Notice how many times he says, stand fast in one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. If one of the greatest pitfalls of the church in the United States is anything, it is the fact that we're so individualistic. In the American culture, it's very different from, like, say, Eastern cultures, Oriental cultures, things like that. I had a friend from college who spent uh, several years in Thailand, and one of the things he told me when he was out there is, Rod, you don't understand, the culture out here is so different when it comes to sharing the gospel because it's an honor-shame culture. It's all, it's all about thinking about other people and how will your conduct, how will your actions affect the honor or the shame of your family or the honor and shame of your country. It's a completely different mindset. But here in the United States, it's all about you. You chase your dreams. You do what you want to do. You deserve it. So much so that I believe the church has suffered from that. And we have lost our sense of community. We have lost our sense of caring for others because we're so focused on fulfilling our dreams. And, and I'm going to be honest, I think a lot of it is just because that's the culture we're in. It's hard for us to fight that tendency, right? But I think we have to. Because Paul says, you're not a citizen of the United States, ultimately. You're a citizen of heaven. Your king is not the president. Your king, your ruler, ultimately is not your mayor or your governor or even you. Your ruler, your king, is the one who has saved you from your sins. And he not only expects, he demands that his followers walk worthy of the gospel with which they've been called. And we have to do it together. He, he tells the church, you need to be firm in your faith. 
Be firm in your faith. All of this, notice, is stand fast in one spirit, one mind, striving together for what? The faith of the gospel. We're not just being belligerent to be belligerent. As Christians, we're supposed to be peaceable people, right? Sometimes, though, I think we get a bad rap because often we are belligerent and sometimes, I think, not in the right way or for the right reasons. We're supposed to be firm in our faith because there's nothing less than Satan himself who's doing everything he can to destroy it. The, the parable that Jesus gives of the sower what is happening? What does he say is happening when the seed falls on some of the ground and the birds come down and they get the seed? What does he say? What does Jesus himself say is happening? The seed is the word and it's going into your hearts, but what are the birds representing? Satan, who wants nothing less than to steal the gospel out of your heart and out of your mind so that you remain in the kingdom of darkness, so that you are no longer or will never be a citizen of heaven. Paul says, we must stand firm in the faith because there is not only Satan trying to assault you, you have the world and its influence pressuring it itself upon you, trying to conform you into their mold. And then, of course, you have your own flesh you're battling. Your own flesh, your inclination to sin. Stand firm in your faith. Do not follow other gods. Follow the one true God. Do not listen to the lies of Satan. Do not listen to the lies of the world and culture. Do not listen to the lies of your own deceitful heart. Stand firm in your faith and do it together. The struggle in the Christian life is not a lone ranger thing. It's not a you must battle alone. The struggle is a communal struggle. We do this together the, the battle of the Christian life is something we do together. Which is why he tells them, have one mind, have one spirit, and strive together. The battle in the Christian life will only be won if we humbly work together. We must have a unified spirit. So the four marks of a church walking worthy of Christ is that she has worthy conduct that she possesses a unified spirit, but number three, she exhibits a bold confidence. In verse 28, he continues on. The sentence isn't over. He says, not in any way terrified by your adversaries. Paul has just been talking about the fact that he has been enduring various adversaries. Right? Back up there earlier. In verse number six, uh, well, let me back up, verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains. If somebody's adding affliction to your chains, it doesn't sound like they're trying to be your friend. But, Paul says, for those who see your worthy conduct and your unified spirit, you can have this bold confidence. You don't have to be terrified of those people, the attacks that they bring against you, because you're standing firm on the gospel. You have Christ clinging to you, and you're clinging to him. There's no fear. So they can say what they want. 
The world can say what it wants about you. Satan can do what he wants to try lie about you. But the reality is, is if you're in Christ, then you have this bold confidence. And what ends up happening? Their attacks against you, the enemy's attacks against you, only further proves their condemnation. They're demonstrating they don't want to be a part of the community of the way. They don't want to be citizens of heaven. So when they attack you because of Jesus Christ, they're attacking ultimately Jesus Christ. And when they stand before him one day, they will not answer to him and say, did you treat my Christians right? Although, of course, they will have to answer for that. But that's not the ultimate thing they're going to answer for. The ultimate thing is, what did you do with Jesus? And if their answer is, I rejected him, then all that they did in life was evidence all along of their condemnation. So Paul says, you don't have to fear. They can attack you as much as you want. And you know what? Sometimes, some of you Christians, you're going to die. Because for some people, Christ delivers by death. If you back up to verse 20, Paul says that it is my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I should be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body. And you know what? He'll be magnified in my body whether I'm living or whether I die. Which has always been a comfort to me because I'll be candid with you. One of the things I'm not looking forward to is dying. I don't know what that's going to be like. I'm not afraid of what happens afterwards. It's the process that scares me. But I think as a Christian, I have this hope that whether I live or even in my death, I can glorify God. And we as Christians, that can be our hope. So we can have boldness. That's what Paul says in verse 20. With all boldness, I shall not be ashamed. And he tells the church in Philippi, you can be bold too. Which means we right now who are enduring the, mock, the mocking and the scorn of the world around us because we follow an ancient antiquated book and aren't up to date with current sexual identities and current ideas, we can endure it. We don't have to be afraid. There's nothing to fear. It's proof of the enemy's condemnation, but he says at the end of verse 28, it's proof of your salvation. And that salvation wasn't because of you. Of all people who understood that, it was Paul. What did we look at when we saw his testimony? Was he looking for Jesus? <laughs> Not in the way he ended up finding him. Jesus found him. And Paul says, you people who trust Jesus, whose life is consumed with Jesus, your lack of fear, your bold confidence, not only proves the condemnation of the enemies who are trying to dissuade you and attack you, but also proves your salvation and that salvation that was sovereignly given to you by God. You could do nothing to earn it. You could do nothing to lose it. You could do nothing to keep it. It's all of Christ. So you can have bold confidence. The final thing he mentions is in the last two verses that the church that's walking worthy of Christ not only has worthy conduct, not only possesses a unified spirit, and not only exhibits a bold confidence, 
but also recognizes her privileged suffering. In verse 29, For to you, church in Philippi, it's been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. This is something I think nobody who says that the Christian way is founded on lies could honestly look at and say, really? Like, like the, the, the Christianity, all those disciples were a bunch of liars and hypocrites. They hid his body. They told people that he was, he was resurrected from the dead, which is a preposterous thing to say. That's all the things they say. But why would somebody do that? Why would somebody do that knowing people would hate that message to the point that they'd be willing to beat you over and over and over again and that you would probably suffer excruciatingly painful deaths for a lie? Why? The bold confidence that Paul could exhibit as a believer was because he knew the thing he preached was true. The gospel message is not a farce. It's not a lie. It's not a fairy tale. It's a real message. And for Paul, as he says in Romans, it's the power of God to salvation. So he says, it's not going to be any surprise if they killed the one whom we follow. It should be no surprise that they will beat and kill us too. The world doesn't want our message. They don't want Christ's message. So to you, it's been granted. This is, this is a privilege that we as Christians have. It has been granted to you not just to believe in him, but to suffer for his name. Question, have you suffered for Jesus? I'm not saying have this complex where you're going and looking for suffering. In the early first century of Christianity, there were people who were teaching that, who were saying, in order for us to live the most amazing Christian life, we have to go out and seek suffering. We have to go out and get persecuted. And there was one guy I learned in my early church history class who, who was literally preaching that message, telling people, come with me. We're going to go over to Rome, and we're going to go and go into the Colosseum. We're going to get ripped to shreds by lions. It's going to be amazing because this is what Jesus wants Christians to do. That's not Paul's point. But he is saying, you will suffer. All those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Sometimes it makes me nervous, not, not for anybody else, this is just me, it makes me nervous that I don't really suffer a lot. It's kind of nice, honestly, to have a comfortable Christian life. And I'm not, I don't want suffering. I'm not saying <laughs> I want that, but it does make me wonder. I see something where it says, you must suffer for his sake, and I don't feel like I'm really suffering. But I think there are levels of it for sure. And I, the way I see our culture going right now, it wouldn't surprise me if over the course of the next 20, 30 years that we begin to see something like that. And when it does happen someday, then there are cultures where it is happening, but in ours right now, if that does happen, it shouldn't be a surprise. And we shouldn't view it as something that's bad. Of course, we don't want to suffer, and, and ultimately we want to live godly and peace, peaceable lives, right? Quiet lives. But Paul says, it has been granted on behalf of Christ that you would suffer for his sake. 
I don't want it. I don't look forward to it. And I doubt anyone in this room wants it or looks forward to it either. But we should prepare ourselves with the mindset that if it does happen, it's something that we know our Lord endured. And are we not greater than our master? We have privileged suffering. And Paul says, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. He's saying, just so you know, I'm not speaking from my ivory tower right now. The things that you guys are enduring or are about to endure are the very same things you've heard me enduring. I've been shipwrecked. I've been beaten. I've been stoned. If anybody understood what it was like to suffer for the cause of Jesus, it was Paul. He's saying, you, and so if you guys think that I'm saying, <laughs> I'm kicking back on my recliner over here and saying, you guys enjoy that suffering that you're having. It's worth it, trust me, as you eat another bonbon. That's not, Paul, that's not what Paul's doing. Paul's saying, I'm in the trenches. I'm fighting with you guys. We're walking together in this Christian life. And just so you know, it makes it more sweet and endurable if you remember that this is intentional and purposeful by God. The servant, the slave, is not greater than the master. If Jesus suffered, it should not be a surprise that his followers will too. So four marks of a church walking worthy of Jesus is that she has worthy, consistent, obvious conduct. She has a unified spirit within her. That she has a bold confidence even in the face of her adversaries. And that she endures with patience and joy and hope the privileged suffering that she may have to go through. This is what Paul says should mark a church walking worthy of the gospel of Christ. May that be true of us. Let's pray. Lord, our faith can be weak at times, and I'll just speak for myself, knowing that I have a weak faith at times where I fear certain things in your providence that you might direct to me. But I pray that you would help me to embrace these truths just as everyone else in this room will. Help us to walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that one day our faith will be sight. And as the songwriter put it, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. I pray for any soul in this room who does not know Christ in the same way that Paul did and exhorts all people to do. That your spirit would move in their hearts and in their minds to love and embrace Jesus. And as your children... I pray that you would help us to be faithful, to walk worthy of the gospel with which we have called until he comes again, in whose name we pray. Amen.